You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. I'm going to ask you, if you would please, to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. Matthew, chapter 14 is where we are this morning. We read beginning at verse... One, we'll read down to verse 12, Matthew chapter 14, beginning with the first verse. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested... He bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they were regarding John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Now, having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask His blessing on this time of preaching. Lord, I thank You for this opportunity to declare the glories of Jesus. I thank You for every soul gathered in this room, each one important, each one sitting here today, but one day meeting with eternity. This is an important day. These our weighty moments, and we ask for your help in this next hour. Lord, flood my mind with the things you've taught me this week. Help me, Lord, to give clear expression to those things as I declare the truth of Christ. Strengthen us, Lord, in our weakness to be good hearers of your word. Strengthen us in our inner man to receive the things you've revealed. Be at work by the power of your Spirit, so that what we experience in this next hour can only be explained by you. Use this time for the ongoing development of your children, for the protection of your sheep and the nourishment of your sheep. And we also ask, Lord, that you would save. You have saved us. You have had mercy upon us. You have delivered us. And our hope is this world's only hope. And as ones who have been redeemed and 
delivered, we know, Lord, Your ability to save, and we ask that You would save others. Thank You for Your mercies that we meet with each morning as we get up. Bless this next hour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Sooner or later, along the way of the Christian journey, you and I are going to meet with what amounts to a spiritual gut punch. Something that takes the wind out of your sails. Something that causes your heart to drop. Something that makes you very sad or discouraged. Something dark. In fact, not only will we meet with it sooner or later, I'm convinced we meet with something like that from time to time. It, it's, it's more than once along the way if we live for very long. Times when it seems... I mean, if we didn't know better, if we didn't know the Word of God, times when it seems like righteousness loses and evil triumphs. Do you ever feel like that? Like righteousness is losing and evil is winning? Our Lord prepared us for this in the 13th chapter of Matthew, gave us a series of parables, all of which really add up to a picture of what is going to happen with the kingdom of heaven between the time of the first coming of the king and the second coming of the king. What is this age we're living in right now going to be like? And if you were to add it all together, what he says really can be summarized this way. The kingdom of God is going to advance in this world. The word of the kingdom is going to advance in this world, but in a way where it will often seem like righteousness is losing and evil is winning. But in the end, the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven is assured. The kingdom of heaven will ultimately triumph, but it's going to advance in this world in a way in which it often seems like it is not advancing. You remember he gave a parable of four soils. You know, what kind of hearers are we going to meet with as we proclaim the truth of his word? Three of those soils represent unbelievers. Only one represents people who receive it. So three out of four reject it. One receives it. And then he told us about the value of the kingdom of heaven and how the people who are saved evaluate it and, and treasure it. And it's like a treasure hidden in a field or the, uh, one pearl of great value. But it's one guy who finds the treasure hidden in the field. And it's one treasure hunter who recognizes the value of that pearl. It's not everybody. It's in the minority. And then he described an enemy who sows tares in a farmer's field and how the tares exist in that field alongside the wheat until the day of the harvest. And then there's this great separation. And through that parable, we were reminded that the people of God, the sons of the kingdom, were going to have to live their lives right alongside the sons of the evil one until the day of judgment, until Jesus returns. So we're going to see the kingdom of heaven advance in a world saturated with Satan's activity and saturated with people who hate Christ and hate the truth and hate his church. That's our mission field. People who have not yet been reconciled to their creator. And then he talked to us about our responsibility to declare the whole counsel of God until that day of judgment, which will certainly arrive until it arrives, dragnet, 
being gathered to the shore. This very moment, the dragnet of God's judgment being gathered to the shore. One day it's going to arrive and the righteous will be separated out from the wicked and the wicked will be judged by the very one whom they have mocked and scorned and rejected. The Lord Jesus Christ will be the judge of all the earth. Through all of those parables, he's telling us the kingdom of heaven will ultimately triumph, but its advancement is going to be in a world where it often seems to suffer defeat. Immediately after those parables, Matthew gives us two scenes involving our Lord where you see this demonstrated. I mean, the parables that Jesus has taught are now seen to be true and real even while our Lord is on the earth. Because we're told of Jesus going to his hometown, Nazareth, and teaching in a synagogue there and how they reject him. Last Sunday evening, we talked about familiar unbelief. And based on the fact they know his family and know know him and know where he grew up, they don't believe that someone so common, who in fact, as we know, was entirely uncommon, how someone so common could be the Messiah. So they reject him. And now we meet with another scene that demonstrates that we're going to meet with these spiritual gut punches because Matthew records the death of John the Baptist. The way preparer, the one who prepares the way for the king, the voice of one crying in a wilderness, his voice is now silenced as he is murdered, executed on the word of a wicked king influenced by a wicked wife whom he should have never been married to. But in this dark scene, evidence abounds of the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven. I want to help you see this morning by the grace of God, if the Lord would allow me, what I want you to see is even when it seems like the darkness triumphs, even when it seems like evil is winning, If you have the eyes to see it, there is evidence all around us of the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven, just like there is in these verses. So this morning, I want you to think with me about four evidences or four demonstrations of the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven, even when it seems righteousness is losing. Four demonstrations of the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven, even when it seems like righteousness is losing. I'll just give them to you as we come to them. First of all, we see the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven in the fear of Herod. Or we can make that more general and say, lost humanity fears judgment. Lost humanity fears judgment. And that testifies to the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has arisen, he has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Verse 3, 4, when Herod had John arrested, and then he goes on to tell us about the death of John the Baptist. Matthew presents the death of John in a very interesting way, doesn't he? He could have just launched immediately into telling us about the death of John the Baptist, but he doesn't begin there. 
He presents the death of John the Baptist in a retrospective way and instead picks it up at the point where Herod has received news about Jesus and he tells us that Herod associates what he's hearing about Jesus with John the Baptist. And then he goes on to tell us about how Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. So he doesn't begin with John the Baptist and his death. He begins with Jesus and what Herod has heard about Jesus and what's going on in the mind and heart of Herod as he hears about Jesus. What is on display in Herod as he hears about Jesus? He's afraid. This is John the Baptist risen from the dead. This is why miraculous powers are at work in him, because John has come back. John has come back. And the same kind of fear, believe it or not, exists in all lost humanity. This is what characterizes human beings separated from their Creator by their sin. They are fearful, anxious creatures. You see that, don't you? Our world is full of fear full of anxiety, anxious about things that really exist, anxious about things that don't exist, anxious in the realm of reality, anxious in the realm of superstition. There's this awareness of something foreboding, this feeling that something bad is on the way, that somehow I'm going to lose what I'm enjoying right now. It's going to come to an end. And though they would never say it this way, what is really going on in the hearts of lost human beings is the awareness that judgment is on the horizon. That men really are sinners. They really have violated the law of their creator. They really are headed toward a judgment. Things will not always be the way that they are right now. Something is truly wrong. And there will be a day when and they have to answer for it. God gave man a conscience. And when man violates what is right, his conscience sounds an alarm. And Herod has done something really wrong, and he knows it, and his conscience is sounding an alarm. This is Herod Antipas, a tetrarch. The lexicon has, for the Greek word translated tetrarch, it has this, a petty prince dependent on Rome and with rank and authority lower than that of a king. He's not really a king. In fact, the word originally referred to the ruler of a fourth part of a region. So if you took a region, divided it into four parts, someone who ruled one part of it would be a tetrarch. Well, in Herod's case, he was actually a ruler of a third when his father Herod the Great died in 4 BC, his kingdom was divided up and one-third of it was assigned to this Herod, Herod Antipas. And so he became the ruler of Galilee and Perea from 4 BC to AD 39. So he's the one ruling over the region in which Jesus is carrying out his ministry, Galilee, at this time. He is a weak man as well as a wicked man. His weakness is seen in the account in verses 3 through 12 of how John died. But before the Spirit of God wants us to know about 
his wickedness in the killing of John, he wants us to know that Herod was troubled, full of a superstitious fear, living with a sense of impending doom. His conscience is plagued with guilt so much that when he hears about Jesus, hears about his miraculous powers, he has to voice it even to his servants. I mean, this is not him talking to his wife or to the daughter that's spoken of in the verses. No, he's talking to his servants. This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. This is why miraculous powers are at work in him. We're not told how he, how he thought that John had returned. It really doesn't matter. Perhaps he, he means in some sort of spiritual sense. The point is he was afraid. And he's afraid because he knows he's done something wrong. And that fear, that anxiety that you see all throughout the earth is man's unconscious testimony to the reality that the kingdom of heaven will triumph in the end. Because even when you, it seems like you're winning, you're afraid of the loss that is coming. I mean, Herod should have been full of confidence. He got rid of John. But he's not. He's afraid. He's still on the run in his heart. Proverbs 28 verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Hebrews 2 tells us the truth about lost man's fears. Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This world is enslaved to sin, and, and the slavery is fueled by fear, the fear of death. People living in sin, trying to pretend they are never going to die trying to imagine they're never going, it's never going to end because they know instinctively in their conscience that when it ends, what awaits them is the judgment. And so what do men do? They anesthetize themselves with pleasure, the things of this world, just drown themselves with that which will deaden their conscience. They avoid in their thinking, in their conversation, the reality of death. In fact, they invent things to try to calm their hearts. You've noticed everyone who dies is in a better place. Everyone who dies is in a better place. Well, at least they're not suffering anymore. Whether they know God or not, whether they've ever professed faith in Jesus or not, well, at least their suffering has, has ended. You know, the, the Bible testifies that if you die without Christ, your suffering has just begun. And there's nothing you can experience in a hospital bed that's as bad as hell. Everybody rests in peace. Or the newer one, I, I guess it's newer, I just had never heard it until recent times. Rest in power. I don't even know what that means. Or their dead loved ones travel about with them. Well, mom is with me. I can just sense dad's presence. Or people become angels. 
What is this? It is imagination. It is superstition. It reflects man's bondage in his sin. He's living his life in the realm of lies. And he doesn't have the courage to face the truth because the truth will expose all of those lies and demand his repentance and faith in the only hope he has, which is the only Savior God has given to man, and his name is Jesus. And so in fear and anxiety, he just keeps running. Running from things that are real, running from things that are not, because he knows that judgment is on the way. So here's this dark scene, but in this dark scene, you see the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven, because the one who has executed the servant of God doesn't feel like a conqueror. His conscience is plagued. He fears judgment. Second evidence of the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven is the expression of this man's fear that actually preceded what you read about in verses 1 and 2. And that is Herod's hatred. You see the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom in Herod's fear, but you also see it in Herod's hatred. Lost humanity hates the messengers of truth. Verse 3, for when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, John the Baptist had been saying to him, to the king, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they were regarding John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked now, having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oath and because of his dinner guests. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. Those who fear death, rightly so, have another kind of fear. They fear the truth. They fear the messengers of truth. Because those who preach the truth of God's Word announce their guilt, give voice to the Word of God that convicts sinners, truthfully and rightly points out the future judgment of sinners, the damnation of sinners, the need of rescue on the part of sinners, the need for forgiveness on the part of sinners. It announces man's violations of the law, the responsibility for those violations, and the singular way, the only way that those transgressions can be forgiven. And if you're lost and you love darkness rather than light, if you don't want to be saved, if you don't want to come to the light, because your sins will be exposed by coming to the light, what do you do? You hate that voice. You hate it. So your fear is on display in your hatred. Herod hated John. 
His wife hated John. Very briefly, just in bullet point fashion, let's take note of how John died. Herod is in an illicit marriage, verse 3. Herod had John arrested, bound him, put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife, notice, the wife of his brother Philip. Herod had stolen his brother's wife. Herod Antipas was in a politically expedient marriage before, ends up divorcing that wife, marries his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, who, by the way, was Philip's niece. So Philip was also in an illicit marriage. He had married his niece, and then Herod steals Philip's wife. So this is all the way around an unlawful marriage. What does John do? He declares, verse 4, the sin of this ruler of his people. John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. This violates the law of God. As a result, Herod hates him and wants to murder him. Verse 5, but he is constrained by his fear of men. If Herod could have done what he wanted right away, he would have just murdered him, but he couldn't because he feared the crowd because the crowd regarded John as a prophet. So instead he imprisons him. He is an immoral man and then he's eventually trapped by his own vices because when his birthday comes, verse 6, his daughter, or the daughter of Herodias, danced before them and pleased him. The text doesn't tell us explicitly, but we, I think, can be virtually certain that this was some sort of immoral demonstration, and it pleases him. And so he makes her a promise. By an oath, he promises to give her whatever she asks for, verse 7. Not only is he in a wicked arrangement and a wicked marriage, he's married a wicked woman. And Herodias knows what she wants. She doesn't like John announcing her sin any more than Herod does. She wants John dead. So she says to her daughter Salome that what she wants is John's head. Verse 8, having been prompted by her mother, the girl said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The same pride that had kept Herod from murdering John now forces Herod to murder John. He's grieved, verse 9 says. He doesn't want to do this. He wants to murder him in verse 5. Why doesn't he want to murder him in verse 9? Probably the same reason. This grieves him, but now because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, I mean, his reputation is on the line. He's forced to do it. And so he sins and he has John beheaded in the prison. Murders a righteous servant of God. This is the gut punch. For those who love the truth, for those who love righteousness, for those who love John, to hear that he had been murdered would have been a very dark day. The way that John is murdered was meant to communicate something. Many ways you could murder someone, but to take off their head and to display it on a platter is meant to intimidate, mock, dishonor the body. There was a lot of hatred present, not only in the desire to murder him, but in the way that he was murdered. And the head is brought on a platter, given to the girl. She brings it to her mother. Now, there's something I want to note at this point that applies to you and me in the time we're living in. 
I want you to remember that John declared the truth not only when it came to Jesus is the Messiah, but John declared the truth when it came to this king's sexual immorality. Faithful servants of God declare the whole counsel of God. Faithful servants of God don't just stay in one lane. They declare everything God has given them to declare. John was chosen by God to prepare the way for Jesus, but God was, was also using John to rebuke a king, a temporal king who was violating God's word. We live in a time when there are people who want to pit Jesus against the Old Testament. We talk about Jesus. We talk about his love. We talk about his example. That Old Testament stuff we're embarrassed by. We don't talk about the Old Testament. I want to remind you of something. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the word of God. Jesus is God. Every word you have in your Bible, every word in this book is the word of Christ. It has come from Christ. It points to Christ. It reflects Christ. And so when people attempt to pit the Old Testament against Jesus, they just reveal they don't know Jesus. They don't believe him. Or people try to pit Jesus against Paul. Beth Moore does this. Sorry if that offends, but it's the truth. Right? I'll take my view of women and their ministries from what Jesus says, but not Paul, because I value Jesus above Paul as if what Paul wrote just came from Paul. What Paul wrote came from Jesus. So when you try to pit Paul against Jesus, you don't know Jesus, at least not the way you should, because what Paul wrote reflects Jesus, the words of Christ. Or they want to take the teachings of Jesus that fit their worldview and say, I like that part of Jesus, and then take the words of Jesus that don't fit their worldview and just ignore those words. So you selectively hear Jesus and you selectively believe Jesus. John wasn't selective in what he believed. He wasn't selective in what he declared. Everything God had spoken, he was charged with declaring. And with courage, you know, the righteous are bold as a lion. With courage explained by God, John stood face to face with a king and told him, it is not lawful what you are doing. Here's the question for you, living in the culture you're living in, that fears death just like Herod feared death, that hates the messengers of truth just like Herod hated the messengers of truth, will you distance yourself from everything Jesus represents? Will you pick and choose where you will be identified with Jesus? Will you pick and choose where you will be identified with Scripture? Or are you a faithful servant of God who embraces the whole counsel of God and believes the whole counsel of God and is willing to be identified with the whole counsel of God so that you'll speak the truth in love to people who need to know the whole counsel of God? Cowardice often exists under the banner of virtue, 
false virtue. And the one word that is most often used in the name of virtue that is really a cloak for cowards is the word love. Will you address this sin with your family member? I want to be loving. I want to be loving. If what you call love won't speak the truth to people, yes, in the right way, with the right attitude, in the right spirit, 100%. But if what you call love is willing to talk about a Savior, but not willing to talk about the sins that the Savior had to die for to save the sinner, if you'll give the good news, but you won't talk about the bad news, what you represent is a perversion of love. Because in truth, it's not that you love them, it's that you love you. Because you know the hatred people have for the truth. You know what it will cost you to be identified with Jesus in that area. You know what it will cost you to speak the truth in that area or to take a stand in that area. So because you love you, you won't tell the truth. But you'll fly under the banner of virtue. You see, I won't do that because I love people. No, you won't do that because you love you. Not because you love God, not because you love them. Because do you know what they need? They need what Herod needed. They need to know that what they're doing is unlawful. That in fact, this is what Scripture condemns. That if you continue along this pathway, you will perish forever. How can you say you love a person and know they're on their way to hell and say nothing? Have dinners, gatherings, celebrations, smiles. And you love them? Why are people cowardly? Because sinners hate the voice of truth that sounds the warning of a judgment that they already instinctively know is coming. And so the fear that speaks of the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven is also reflected in a hatred that speaks of the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven. People hate the truth because deep in their hearts they know it's true. Herod was afraid. Herod hated John. Third evidence of the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven. You see it in verse 12. And his disciples came, that's John's disciples, came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. The third example, the third demonstration of the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven is that it is already triumphing. It's already winning. Because there are people on the earth unlike who they were when they were lost. Death is no longer something they have reason to fear. They no longer have hatred for the truth. They love the truth. They don't hate the messengers of truth. They love the messengers of truth. You realize these disciples, when they come and take the body of John and bury it, they identify themselves with John at the very time that he's just been beheaded. I mean, that might be a time when you just want to go hide. But they don't go hide, they go get the body. The body that Herod's family has dishonored, John's disciples will honor. Why? Because they are sons of the kingdom. They understand they have nothing to fear. Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
the worst Herod could ever do to John, he's already done. John is now in the presence of his creator. John is in the accepting presence of God. They can't harm John. And they can't harm his disciples. And they go and tell Jesus because they know that Jesus loves John. And they know that Jesus admires John. The admiration of God's Son for his messenger was already on display in Matthew chapter 11. Remember when he heard that John had been arrested, put in prison. Jesus went on an extended time of discussion about, about John. Matthew 11 verse 2, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus loved John. John's disciples loved John. The kingdom of heaven has already triumphed because there are a people in the earth who are different than they were when they were lost. God has opened their eyes. He has opened their hearts. And the ones who feared death fear it no longer. And the ones who hated the truth hate it no longer. And the ones who would dishonor a servant of God dishonor them no longer. They have love for the messengers of truth because they love the author of truth. Fourth evidence of the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven, the lost man's fear, the lost man's hatred for the truth, the saved man's love for the truth and love for the messengers of the truth. But the fourth evidence you see in what we're going to deal with tonight, I just wanted to mention it this morning. You see the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven in that Redemption's work goes on even with the sorrows of this world, even with the gut punches. When it seems like righteousness is losing and evil is winning, even then what happens? The work goes on. The kingdom continues to advance. The word goes forth. Verse 13, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. There's debate among commentators 
Literally, it is when Jesus heard about this. And so there's a debate. Does verse 13 refer back to verse 12? They went and reported to Jesus. Or does it refer back to verses 1 and 2? When Jesus heard how Herod was responding to his ministry, or is it when Jesus heard about John's death? And the reason why is it's clear that verses 3 through 12 represent a retrospective. They take us back to an earlier time. The LSB translation reflects the idea that it refers back to verse 12, now when Jesus heard about John. In a sense, it doesn't matter. Was Jesus seeking to be alone because he was sad, saddened by the news of John? Or is Jesus seeking to be alone because he's sober? We have now reached a point where the resistance is at a fever pitch. I mean, the one who beheaded John the Baptist now associates Jesus with John. Jesus has just been rejected in Nazareth. The resistance is continuing to ramp up. It's getting worse and worse. We're in a new phase of ministry. The messenger's gone. Jesus on the road to Calvary, on the road to the cross. Does he need time alone as he sets his mind, sets his heart on what is to come? Either way, when Jesus gets off that boat where he wanted some time alone and comes onto the shore and meets with a multitude of people who have followed him there, how does he respond? He feels compassion for them and he ministers to them. The Savior goes right on with his saving work. And those of us who have been saved by that work and now are his servants in this world during this age until he comes again, we need to walk in his footsteps. We meet with those gut punches. And they can come in so many different ways. It can come in the realm of a relationship. It can come in the realm of, of our physical existence, our health, or whatever the case may be. It can come in some disappointment in what has happened in a church or in some prominent person who has been associated with the gospel. It can come in the news of an imprisonment or an execution, a martyrdom. It can come in so many different ways. But the point is, what do we do? We meet with multitudes of people who need the gospel, and though we may be sad or though we may be sobered, we walk on. We preach the word. 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom in view of his coming again and his kingdom, which will ultimately triumph. Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. When it seems like righteousness is making tremendous advances, when it seems like righteousness is overcome, preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. 
God's people dealing with sadness, heartbreak, discouragement, all the challenges of life in a world under a curse. What do we do? We keep on declaring the word of the kingdom. And the work continues to advance in this world until the day that it ultimately triumphs. The work of the kingdom must go on. And the fact that that work goes on, the fact that Christ's church will never be overcome, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Your presence here this morning is a testimony that the kingdom of heaven will ultimately triumph. The world's fear says it. The world's hatred says it. The presence of people who love the truth and the messengers of the truth says it. And the fact that the church exists and the work goes on says it. Even in a dark moment, there's evidence all around that the kingdom of heaven triumphs in the end. So let me ask you as we finish, where do you stand in relationship to these demonstrations of the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of heaven? Where do you stand? Do you have reason to fear death? If you don't know Jesus, my friend, listen, I love you when I tell you this. If you don't know Jesus, you have reason to fear death. The moment you close your eyes in death, you will enter hell. But God has made the way for you to be saved so that you'll never have to fear death. His son conquered death and the grave. Jesus, the eternal son of God, came from heaven, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on a cross for people just like me and you, sinners, and paid for all the sins of all those who will trust in him. The moment you trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven and his righteousness is given to you as a gift and death is no longer an enemy that has any sting. Close your eyes in death, you're in the presence of God. But where do you stand right now? Have you received Christ? Do you hate the messengers of truth? Do you hate it when people tell you the truth? See, I never know who's here. I mean, maybe someone sort of dragged you in here today. Maybe this is your worst nightmare. You're here for a parent dedication. Are you someone like that? I mean, you hate the truth. Why? Why do you hate it? Why does it bother you so badly? Isn't it because deep in your heart you know it's true? You know you're a sinner. You know you're headed to judgment. Listen, don't fight God's rescue of you. Realize what produces that hatred. It's your sin, the very thing you need to be saved from. But God is so good and so kind, so merciful, so loving, that while you're still a sinner, He brings you the good news of His willingness to save you. If you'll just yield to that, if you'll just turn your heart and receive the Son of God, this day you will live. Is there someone sitting here you've been playing the coward? You've been put in situations where you can take your stand with Christ, but in the name of loving someone, you have played the coward. Will you stop? We can all play the coward, can't we? I heard about someone who, sitting by a fire, denied Jesus three times. And the Lord met him on a seashore and three times gave him the opportunity to affirm his love. How patient our Savior is with our cowardly moments. We just stop being the coward. But I warn you, the book of Revelation makes clear, if that's not a moment, if that's your character, 
cowards won't be in heaven. Because when you really believe the truth, you can't go on separating yourself from it. Eventually, you take your stand with it. Will we keep serving Christ even in tears? You've been through a hard season. You've gone through something that has been your gut punch. It has, it has taken the wind out of your sails. You've been suffering. But my brother, my sister, it's time to stand up and walk on. Psalm 126 verse 5 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy bringing his sheaves with him. You may have to go on for a while with tears, but go on with tears because the end is coming and we know how it ends. The kingdom of heaven will triumph. And God's people say, let's pray together. Oh Lord, what more can be said when we have spoken clearly of your son? He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. There is no other way but Him. And everything He's given us is true. From Genesis to Revelation, every word of it is the truth. Galvanize us, Lord. Strengthen us to be like Your servant John was. A man who struggled with his doubts and sent word to Jesus to have those doubts answered. But Your work was proven in him when he could have remained silent but instead told the King the truth. He wasn't just faithful to announce your son. He was faithful to announce a king's sin. And your son honored him. And people who love the truth honored him. Lord, strengthen us to be a people who clearly identify ourselves with our Savior and who honor others who do the same. Bless your church. Strengthen us through these words. And Lord, save the lost. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.